So as we jump back into the book of Acts, a quick review. Uh, In chapter 1, what we saw is the mission is given. Jesus gathered his disciples, about 100 or so, and he says to them, uh, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's the mission that was given in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, as God promised, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit comes on his disciples. They're empowered. The mission is empowered by the Spirit. They, they boldly proclaim the gospel in many languages. Peter preaches a powerful sermon and many thousands come to faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 3, the mission is affirmed. The mission is affirmed. If you remember, they came across a lame man and they miraculously healed him in the name of Jesus. Well, that gave them a powerful platform. You know, this guy had been lame for 40 years. And Peter says, don't look at us. We're just men. He was healed by the power of God. Right. So the mission is affirmed in Acts three In Acts four and five. The mission is opposed. They get great opposition from the outside. You know, there are those who hear the gospel and reject it and, and say, no, no, you need to stop preaching like that. And then in Acts five, it's opposed by uh, hypocrisy from within. Ananias and Sapphira lie to God. In Acts six, the mission organizes. Right. So the church has grown so big and so large that they're having a a few little problems within and they appoint deacons. They appoint men to lead and to serve and to make sure that needs are being met. They they organize as a community to be more effective. In Acts chapter seven, we see that the cost of the mission. We've had a lot of threats. We've had some arrests. We've even had beatings. And warnings, do not preach in the name of Jesus. But in Acts 7, it gets real. We have Stephen who um, is so much like Christ in the way that he's doing and serving the people, miraculously doing some things and preaching the gospel. He's so much like Christ that they want to kill him just like they did Jesus. So they do. They stone Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, we see that the expense, the cost of the mission is now going to cause the spread, the expanse of the mission. So as you've turned with me there in uh, Acts chapter 8, let me begin this way. Um, There's a guy in the gym that where I work out, I try to go three, four, maybe sometimes five times a week. And I feel like I see him almost every time I'm there and he wears the exact same shirt. Maybe he has, uh, um, what do they call that when baseball players do certain things? Superstitious. Maybe he's superstitious. Maybe he thinks if I, if I wear a different shirt, I'll lose all my muscles. I don't know. Uh, but he wears the same shirt and it's got cut off sleeves and it's a little torn on the edges with the shirt. Here's what it says. Real common logo. It says, no pain. Do you know it? No gain. That's his shirt. And I'm, I'm, I'm just always looking at him, you know, watching him work. And he's, you know, he's a grunter. You know those guys? You know, they grunt. No pain, no gain. Well, there's some truth to that statement. With my own body in the gym, I know this. That uh, if I want to gain strength and lose some of this uh, fluff, 
uh, I've got to make myself sweat. I've got to um, work hard, push myself to the line and beyond it. I can't quit when I want to. I've got to push further. And it hurts. It's painful. Usually for days it hurts. <laughs> and the older I get, the, the more I'm aware of that. But it is for gain that I endure that pain. You don't have to do that. But I actually choose the pain because I want the gain. So no pain, no gain. In some ways, the mission of Jesus is like that. And in our text today, in Acts chapter 8, we're going to see how some great pain brings about great gains for the gospel. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 8, and let's stand to read just the first eight verses together. Right on the heels of Stephen's execution, his murder. Remember, he's just been stoned to death, praying that the Lord would not hold their sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. When Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth today. Lord, show us truth in a way that compels us to walk differently. Help us to see Jesus as the glorious rescuing redeemer that he is. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I want us to ask the question today. What is God doing? The, uh, the main ideas of this message is to answer that question. What is God doing? I don't know if you've ever been in a difficult time in your life. Maybe a time of struggle, a time of suffering, a time of persecution maybe. Or maybe it was a problem of your own doing. I don't know. But when you look around, maybe you found yourself asking that question. God, what are you doing? What is going on? And in this text, I think we see some answers to that question in the middle of a very difficult time for the church. Now, like I said, in Acts 7, we've just seen Stephen, who was so Christ-like that they wanted to kill him. We've just seen Stephen die. Now we have to see, what is God doing? Imagine, I imagine some in the church are, are looking around at the great persecution that's happening and they have to be wondering, okay, God, where are you? What are you doing? I thought this was 
going to be different from this? And so we're going to ask and answer that question today. What is God doing? The first thing I want us to see in this passage that God is doing is this. God makes even persecution serve his mission. God makes even persecution to serve his mission. If you remember, Stephen had just recalled the story of Joseph in his sermon Uh, Among other stories, he talked about Joseph and he told about how Joseph, like Jesus, was a rejected rescuer. You know, his own brothers rejected him, threw him in a pit and then sold him into slavery. Potiphar rejected him. When Potiphar's wife accused him of rape, Potiphar chose his wife over Joseph, even though he knew it wasn't true. Potiphar rejected him. His prison buddy, while he was in jail, he made a friend and he interpreted a dream. And that guy got out of jail, but his prison buddy rejected him and forgot him. Joseph was rejected and rejected and rejected. But God was positioning him to be a rejected rescuer, much like Jesus. God had positioned Joseph to save his people. And if you remember at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph, the now leader in Egypt, who's leading the the time during famine to make sure everybody gets food. And his brothers who betrayed him are standing in front of him. He looks at his brothers and he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That principle we can apply to this text as well. There's a story of a, of a pastor several years ago in Boston. His name's Samuel, Samuel Bringle. He was also a volunteer at the Salvation Army. He went down uh, weekly and served and worked at the Salvation Army. He had a passion for those battling with addiction. And uh, one day as he's passing by a local bar, some of the men decided to throw a brick at him. And they had painfully good aim. The brick hit Pastor Bringle in the head and he hit the ground. He nearly died, but he spent 18 months in recovery. During that time in recovery, he wrote a little book. And the little book he called Helps to Holiness. Thousands of copies of this little book were sold and many people were blessed by his book. In fact, after he was able to begin preaching again, people would often thank him for the book. And he was renowned for saying this. If there had been no little brick, there would be no little book. His wife actually saved the brick that hit him in the head and she had Genesis 50, 20 engraved on it, which reads. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You know, perspective matters and how you deal with problems. It matters. How you view and how you see the problems that come into your life, whether it's a a brick uh, or just a curveball in life. How you handle it, how you deal with it shows what you truly believe about how sovereign our God is. What is your perspective? I feel like some of us take every opportunity to grumble and gripe and complain when things don't go our way. And still others have learned now to roll with the punches. We find a way somehow to see the silver lining. And as Christians, 
We don't just look to silver lining. We look to a sovereign Lord. And we trust that even in our suffering, he's in control. We can rest in the hands of Jesus. What do we know? We know that God will use even our evil to accomplish his purpose. God will use even our evil to accomplish his purpose. Now, that's good news when it's your evil. And here's what I mean. When it's you doing the evil, you can trust that our God, there's nothing you can do beyond his willingness and ability to forgive and redeem. We see that specifically with Saul. Saul standing here uh, approving of the execution of Stephen. And in just a few chapters, he's going to go from being the, the biggest persecutor to the biggest preacher the church has ever known. It's because our sovereign God has a way of taking our evil and using it for his purposes. That's also good news, not only when it's your evil, but when it's someone else's evil against you. When someone is acting evil and acting harshly and being mean to you, it's good news because if you trust God, he can restore and redeem even the most broken of relationships. Some of you are shaking your head because you say, yeah, I've been there. I've had a broken relationship that God has radically restored. Last weekend, I had the honor of preaching a wedding and for some very dear friends of ours. And I was so excited to preach this wedding because um, I did I did marriage counseling for this couple two years earlier. So two years ago, we were trying to save their marriage and it didn't work. Uh, you know, we prayed hard and we fought hard, but there was a lot of betrayal, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger, and they ended up divorcing. Um, this couple split. I mean, it was a divorce. He moved two hours away. I mean, they, they moved on with life. They have two young children and um, we've, we've remained involved in their lives. And um, through the course of the working of our sovereign God, last weekend I got to preach their wedding take two. <laughs> I got to restore their marriage together. These two, I stood in front of them just tears rolling down as they looked each other in the eye and said some of the most gospel glorifying truths that God can take what we have messed up and use it for his glory. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's the beauty of the gospel is that God will use even our evil to accomplish his good. In Acts chapter eight, young Saul is the tool in Satan's hand. He's He's charging through the church and he's just causing all kinds of destruction. The description we read in verse three is this. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So at least four things are happening. He's ravaging. That word means um, shredding. The imagery is a, a wild boar just busting through. He's just tearing it apart. Then look at what happens. He's entering. They're entering house after house. Use your imagination for a minute. We're talking about Saul kicking in doors, barging in and taking people out of their living room furniture, so to speak, jerking them out into the streets and dragging them off to prison. This is the kind of persecution that's happening in the church. It wasn't a short term thing either. They weren't dragging them out on the road and smacking them on the wrist. Says he was committing them to prison. We're talking about orphaning children. This is what's happening in the church. Well, this caused a great scattering 
of the people of God. You know, Stephen shows that these early Christians are willing to die for Jesus. It's not that they weren't willing to die. It's just they weren't seeking out persecution either. So where did they go? Acts 8.1. Look at your scriptures, your copy of the scriptures. It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So they went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. I don't know if you see it. But remember, the main takeaway we have right here is that God uses evil to accomplish his purposes. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when God called his church on mission? When he gave them a mission, he said, you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem and then where? Judea and Samaria, right? That's Acts 1.8. Acts 8.1. It's all coming to fruition. But God is using persecution to accomplish his mission. What the enemy meant for evil, to stomp out the gospel, God meant for good, to spread the gospel. So the Bible says that God uses all things. Somebody say all things. God uses all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. So let's grow our perspective to include and rest in his control. He's in control, even when the world around you is in chaos. When I was a boy, I don't know why, but I, I, I longed for the day that I would get to sit on a lawnmower and <laughs> mow the grass. I don't know why, um, but that's what I wanted to do. And um, my older brothers had tricked me, you know. It was one of their chores. They had to cut the grass. And I can remember watching them through the living room window, watching them ride that mower and thinking, that looks so wonderful. (laughs) And they would come inside and they'd be like, that was amazing. (laughs) So when it came my turn, you know, I I was like, this is going to be great, right? And it surprisingly wasn't. Um, But mowing grass as a young boy, I can remember specifically being on that lawnmower and looking out and seeing an anthill that was massive. And I remember feeling like I'm about to decimate some ants. They won't even see this coming. I'm going to I'm going to destroy that anthill. It, it's going to be the end of about a million ants. And I'd take that lawnmower and I would plow through that big, great dirt mound and a huge dust cloud of dirt would come flying out the side and these little bitty scatter of ants, right? And I thought, (laughs) there was some kind of, I don't know, evil in me. I don't know what it was. But I remember thinking, that'll teach them. But you know what happened? About a week later, where there was one big anthill, there were about 13 little anthills. And what I had intended to do to destroy them didn't work. I only scattered them. And that's the second principle I want you to see in our text today is that God scatters his people to spread his gospel. God scatters his people to spread his gospel. We notice that the very thing that got Stephen killed and has now gotten these Christians ripped out of their homes and sent on the run 
The very thing is the preaching of the gospel. Remember, that's what's been the issue all along. The issue has always been about the gospel of Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, after they heal the lame man, the, the religious authorities say, in whose authority and in what name have you done this? And they said, oh, in the name of Jesus, Nazareth, there is salvation in no one else but his name. And they said, you'll no longer speak in his name. Acts chapter 3, verse 18, they forbid them to preach and teach and do anything in the name of Jesus. They were arrested again and beaten in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. It says, we're going to beat you, we're going to let you go, but you are not allowed to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. The Bible says they went on their way rejoicing and preaching. And this story is no different. Stephen has been murdered Christians are dragged out of their homes. Many are cast into prison and they scatter doing what? Look at what the Bible says in verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. (laughs) They went about preaching the word. Can you imagine the frustration of their persecutors? I, I, I almost hear them saying, we tried killing their leader. Then we killed the one who uh, looked just like him. We stoned him to death. Now we've dragged them out of their homes. We've ransacked their stuff. We've thrown them into prison. They've gone running and still preaching. We can't stop these people. Can you imagine the frustration? I imagine it was a bit like running over an anthill. Thinking you've won. Here's the deal. What you preach shows what you treasure. Especially when that preaching will bring you pain or loss in this life. When I say the word preach, I think in our culture we tend to, uh, we tend to think that only a preacher preaches. And I kind of wanted to blow up that myth for a moment and just tell you that every one of you preach with your lives and with your words. And I want to call you to be preachers of the gospel. And you say, well, I, I, don't, I can't prepare a sermon or anything like you do. That You don't need to. These people scattered gossiping the glory of Jesus. They were just talking about how glorious Jesus is. As they've been thrown out of their homes. They're preaching the gospel, not in some kind of speech, prepared message, but in a life of joy and satisfaction in Christ. Have you ever had to be bold or stick to stick to your guns on an issue or convictions when you knew that stance was going to cost you? You've probably been there where you had to stay firm on an issue, even though you knew this is going to be tough. Well, their boldness to preach Christ in spite of their loss shows us what they treasure. And I just want to point out three things quickly. And I want to preface this by saying the Lord has convicted me greatly this week. And so I'm I'm going to say some things that are going to be hard to hear, I think. Um, But I want you to know that I'm right with you. I'm not preaching any truth that um, the Lord hasn't wrecked me over. 
Here's what we see. They preach what they treasure. They treasure Christ above their safety. They treasure Christ above their safety. Seeing Stephen killed and their brothers and sisters in Christ dragged out of their homes and thrown into prison, they still choose to continue preaching the gospel of Jesus at the threat of their lives or the threat of being pulled out of their homes and losing everything at the threat of losing their children. They still say he's worth it. He's worth it. We treasure Christ above all of that. They treasured Christ above safety. In our culture, safety has become an idol. Many companies are getting rich because we have become worshipers. They're capitalizing on the worship of safety. We've become obsessed with our safety. These are hard statements and I want us to hear them. When safety is your idol, Jesus cannot be your master. You see, he sends us out as sheep among wolves. He says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And when we say, but Lord, it's not safe. He assures us that we will be hated and persecuted and even killed for his namesake. And we say, but Lord, I don't know if it's worth it. When safety is your idol, Jesus cannot be your master. You must choose. If we are more concerned as believers with whether people heed the words of Dr. Fauci than if they obey the commands of Christ, we're off track. And our lives are out of priority. Now, to be clear, I'm, I'm not advocating for foolishness or a disregard for medical advice. I mean, I'm here with a mask. I'm encouraging you to wear it. I wear it. I'm encouraging social distancing, all of those things. We're not going to be fools. But we must not lose sight of what our priority is. And we will not cling to safety if it means losing the message of the gospel. simply calling us back to prioritize the mission of Jesus above the preservation of our own lives. These disciples treasured Christ above their safety. If we don't see it, we're blind. So church, I'm not minimizing the, the fear of, of, of a virus. It's real. But if this virus keeps us from the mission of Jesus, we've lost our way. And I'm telling you, we cannot push pause on the mission of the gospel because people are still dying and going to hell. And we must preach the gospel, even if it costs us our lives.
We treasure Christ above our safety. Secondly, they treasured Christ above their possessions. Persecution as a way of purifying the affections of the heart. When your things are taken or destroyed, how do you respond? I was reminded this week how my stuff can grip my heart. I had a lunch meeting with a couple of our elders. We left lunch and I walked outside and found a little note on my car. I'm so sorry I hit your car with mine. Don't you love those notes? Uh, very sweet girl and uh, she was so kind. But as I read that little note, I thought, I didn't even see any damage. Oh, man, this car. Frustration, anger, and all those things started coming up. Why? Because my stuff is really special to me. And the Lord was giving a, a, a small lesson to say, you know what? It really doesn't matter that much. It's not that important. And I think about this church that was just ripped out of their homes and had to flee for their lives. And we just see that stuff was not the priority. I want you to read with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Excuse me, Hebrews 10 verse 34. If you have it in your Bible, I want you to underline a particular phrase in this passage. Hebrews 10 34. The writer is looking back to seasons of great persecution in the church. And here's what the scripture says. It says... For you had compassion on those in prison. He's talking, he's commending the early church for their compassion on those who were thrown into prison. And look at the next phrase. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Underline that phrase. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I'm convicted. Because if you take my things, I will probably not be joyful. I'm, and I'm just being honest. If you damage my vehicle or you damage my stuff, or my stuff is important. It's too important. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? How did they do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The great reality is Jesus is the better possession that no one can take. And you'll have him forever. That was the psalm we read this morning. In your presence is everlasting joy. The fullness and everlasting joy. This is radical. It's radical truth that this church is persecuted, experiencing the plunder of their property, and they accept it joyfully. So they treasured Christ above their possessions. They treasured Christ above their clique. Now listen. They treasured Christ above their clique. This Jerusalem church, as culturally diverse as it was, is still very Jewish. And they still had those people, quote, those people that they were reluctant to go to and they were reluctant to let in. Specifically for them, those people were the Samaritans. They had a specific ethnic uh, dividing line between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus was constantly pressing on that cultural barrier. Constantly. 
In John chapter 4, the Bible says he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Because he wanted to meet with a woman at the well. And he spent time talking with her. And to a Samaritan woman, he first revealed himself as the Christ. Blew the minds of the disciples. Then he spent more days in the Samaritan village of Sychar because they asked him to because of her witness. And he stayed there in Samaria until the whole village went from outsider to insider. In Luke 17, Jesus healed a Samaritan leper on the way to Jerusalem. Blew the minds of his disciples. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus taught us the concept of loving our neighbor with the unlikely hero The good, what? Samaritan. Shocking. Teaching Pharisees how to be a good neighbor by using a Samaritan as an example. Our cliques are a hidden danger. I want you to hear this. Your clique is a hidden danger. A lot of what we need is there. Friendship. Honesty, love, laughter, authenticity, vulnerability. These are the people you can let down your hair with. Lou would say, you take off your spanks with these people, right? (laughs) These are your people. These are your people. You can be yourself with these people. It's a hidden danger. It's a hidden danger. You say, "Why, why, why do you say that? Well, here's why. Because the gospel calls us to press Those relational needs that we have for love and laughter and authenticity to press those into a blended community. People who are not like you. People who don't like what you like. We are to be a people who are always welcoming outsiders and where distinctions like skin color and financial portfolio are less and less and less and less significant. Because. Christ is more and more and more significant. And when we treasure Christ, he becomes the key component to our community. So church, they they treasured Christ above their clique. Here's here's why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because they Philip went to the Samaritans to preach the gospel. They they scattered to people, non-Jew people, and preached the gospel, welcoming people into the family. So when we find ourselves only gravitating toward those we know or toward those who know us, we need to remember that the gospel calls us to have eyes for the outsiders. The gospel calls us to go to them and to welcome them in. We need to have eyes for the new person. If uh, you're fairly new to Mountain View, I want you to know you are welcome here. You are wanted here. You're loved. We want you to know and treasure Christ with us. People are looking for where they can belong. And the body of Christ needs to be that place. So they treasured Christ above their cliques. What else is God doing? So God's using evil for his glory. He's using it for his purposes. God is also scattering us to spread the gospel. And lastly, I want you to see that God's gospel brings joy to the people. I I titled this message today, Persecution Scatters Joy. It's an interesting title because it seems so um, contradictory. 
It seems like persecution would scatter a lot of griping and complaining. Because that's our reality, right? We live in such an entitled situation and culture that if anything hard comes on us, our gut reaction is to think, well, I don't deserve that. But the message that Jesus is the source of true and lasting joy is received by these Samaritans. The church was scattered from their homes and their possessions. They had nothing. And yet... They are full of joy. They brought joy to the city. That's a good summary for what we need to do, who we need to be as a church. We need to be the kind of people who are bringing joy to the city. Serving our city, our region, and bringing joy to the nations wherever we go and send our people. We need to be joy bringers. Is that true of you? Do you bring joy with you? Or when you're coming, do people go, oh man, here, here she comes. <laughs> do you know that joy, just like grumbling, is contagious? And for these who scattered with the gospel, they took joy to the city because they already had joy in their heart. They may have lost everything they had, but what they preached was we have all we need. Their message was so compelling because their hearts were so full of joy, even when their earthly lives seemed so empty. We look at Philip's um, experience in, in Samaria and just quickly, I want to say that miraculous healings. Miraculous events, things that, P, uh, that Philip is doing here, they serve to give divine credence to the message of hope that Philip preached. When you go with the gospel, you are not alone. When Philip goes preaching, he scatters out of Jerusalem, the city of God, and he scatters out into the city of the, the people who are far from God, so he thinks. And he goes preaching a gospel and doing amazing ministry, miraculous ministry. And what he finds is that when I go with the gospel, my God goes with me. Let me ask you this. We, we, we read in the text that... Um, Unclean spirits were crying out, coming out of people and screaming with loud voices. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Just a question. You think about it. You don't have to answer. Who can cast out demons? Only God. Now, God can use a man. But a man can't do it without God. The point I'm making is that through these miracles, we see that Philip, as he goes on mission, he goes with God. And isn't that the truth of the gospel when Jesus gave the great commission? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, what? I will be with you. Always, 
When you go with the gospel, you go with God. And our message is a message of joy. I love what Tucker was sharing about their honeymoon trip. Um, Just saying that looking around, seeing all these people who are looking for joy in all the wrong places. What we know is that Jesus is the source of joy. And we take that gospel with us. I want to end our time this morning just reflecting on Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Really want you to focus in on verses 3 through 5. But I want to read it in the context. It's a short chapter. So I'm just going to read a segment of this. You'll probably be familiar with the beginning because it's a popular prayer, but it says this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, why does God bless us? Look, that your way may be known on the earth. That's evangelism. That's spreading the gospel. Your saving power, where? Is scattered among all nations. God scatters his people to spread his gospel. Now, look, what kind of gospel is it? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. They're scattered to spread the gospel. The gospel message is hard to hear at first. Because at first it looks you in the face and says you have sinned against a holy God. And unless you repent and trust in Jesus, you will spend an eternity separated from him in a terrible place called hell. That sounds like bad news. That doesn't sound like it can bring joy. But here's the joyful good news of the gospel. You can't save yourself. But there's one whom God has sent. And he's done everything to save you. And if you put your whole faith in Jesus, you will be saved. And you will know true joy. That's the gospel. Church, let's let our joy in Jesus fuel our gospel preaching so that even if we're run out of our homes and have to scatter, we will continue loving people with the message that Jesus is our only hope and he is our source of abiding joy.